Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. What a fun reading of the scripture. Did it sound like a movie trailer to you too? Okay, just checking. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, This is what the church uh, folks who decide that sort of thing decided to call it, Palm Sunday. Uh, Because Jesus rode into Jerusalem and people were waving palm branches. They lay those branches down, they lay down their coats, and they were celebrating his, uh, what they believed to be the beginning of his uh, kingdom, that he was going to be their literal, physical king. And they were finally going to experience political uh, freedom, and that was not so. The main story that I want us to think about for Palm Sunday uh, has to do with the word expectations, that there's a great dichotomy between what Jesus was thinking, what he was planning to do all along, his sense of who he was and what his mission was, and what everybody else thought. Everybody else, as event, events began to unfold, they were totally confused. They were confounded, bewildered, discouraged, disillusioned. Why are these things happening? Nobody could guess. Um, This whole idea of expectations and expectations not being met, it's a very common theme in life in general, and that's what Palm Sunday allows us to focus on. Uh, Such a story in the Bible is the prophet Samuel choosing a replacement king. After King Saul, God sends the prophet Samuel to a man named Jesse, and Jesse has seven sons. And uh, Samuel says to Jesse that I've come to anoint the new king of Israel. And Jesse presents his six sons before him. And for each one, God says, no, he is not the one. He is not the one. And each time Samuel is thinking, this is surely, this has to be the king. Look how tall he is. Look how handsome he is. Look how distinguished he looks. And each one God rejects. And then finally, they run out of sons. And then Samuel says to Jesse, is that it? Is that all you have? And uh, this father, then remembering that he had a seventh son, says, oh, I do have another one, but he's rather short. And he's just sort of a helper around here. And he's out in the fields working as a shepherd. It's the lowliest of jobs. And then David comes, and he's ruddy, and he's handsome. And then God says, that's the one. And Samuel, the prophet, learns a very important lesson that resonates throughout Scripture. And the lesson is this, that God does not see as man sees. For God looks at the heart of the matter, whereas man looks at the outward appearance of things. That as hard as we try, in our own skin, we keep seeing, thinking, feeling the wrong thing. We take measurements, but we're measuring the wrong things. This is a pattern in all of life, and this is what we're going to see today as well. Uh, A couple of stories here. Uh, For some reason, I have a lot of Asian friends who are in the restaurant business, who are restauranteurs. It's a good departure from doctors and lawyers, if you ask me. We had a guy living with us. I walked into this restaurant called Five Guys Burgers and Fries. And uh, it was the first one to ever open up in New York. It was the grand opening week. I said, hey, could I talk to the 
manager here? We don't have a manager, but we have the owner here. Would you like to talk to him? I said, sure thing. Hey, Mike, my name is Peter. Nice to meet you. This is a great burger. I really like it. I think you should cook the fries a little bit more. And this was the actual conversation. And I said, you know, we have a room for rent in our house. Would you like to live with us? And he thought, are you crazy? Why are you asking me this random question? A month later, Mike Hoover calls me up and he moves into our house. So we have one of the owners of Five Guys living with us. Um, the long and short of it is the Sung family got sick of Five Guys burgers and fries. <clears throat> we had another guy, Todd. Uh, he did all of the food for the whole crew and cast for WB's The Gossip Girl. And, which was filmed in New York City. And they had a contract. They had to do all these different kinds of foods. And uh, it was all five-star restaurant quality food that they ordered from different restaurants all around New York City. And each night, he'd have tons of food left over because they don't eat it all. They're just required to provide it part of their contract. And so we'd be eating all of this gourmet food and we'd have leftovers and I'd be walking around at midnight with bags of food, ringing doorbells with lights that were on so that I can give away free food instead of throwing it away. And then I have a friend who started a Thai restaurant and then it became a chain of Thai restaurants. It's all over Michigan, the state of Michigan. Then I have another friend of his, a friend of mine, who opened up a fusion place. And then now, uh, now another very good friend, one of my very best friends, is opening up a burger and shakes joint near NYU this coming summer. Now, I tell you all this because all of these guys will tell you that every single endeavor, including this restaurant business thing, none of them have ever taken the course that was charted for those restaurants. That no expectations have ever been met. That they were full of surprises and curveballs and factors that almost threatened to shut down the show. But somehow, through some serendipitous thing or some lucky or this Somehow, they're alive, and they're making it. It was painful to watch five guys open a second store, open a third store, open a fifth store, but I saw it expand. I saw the empire grow. Fascinating, but what a pain the story was. Because there are these guys with expectations and plans, and it never seems to go that way. There's a whole industry trying to predict future performance and all of them fail miserably time and time again. Whether you're talking about football or stocks or classroom teachers or church planters or jobs or parenting or being a kid, nothing ever is as we expect. And so we learn that life is highly unpredictable. It's not quite what we thought or imagined. It never, ever is. But there are some common themes, two common themes I want us to talk about today that are always present, even in the midst of all of this unpredictability. And I want us to talk about why we tend to not see this, even though it's right there before our eyes. And Jesus spells it out for us today in the text. Okay, and the two things we're going to talk about are satanic possession. That's right, because it's in the text that way. And divine revelation, because that is also in the text. What we're going to see through these two points 
is that though all of Jerusalem is confused and bewildered about the unfolding of these events, every person is, but Jesus alone is absolutely clear in his identity and mission. That the scriptures tell us his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem. He knew exactly who he was and who he was not what his mission was and what his mission was not. That he came to die for the penalty of our sins. That is a propitiation is a theological word for our sins to put to death, death and to rise again by trusting in God, his father and to give us the same Holy Spirit that raised his dead body from the grave to live in us so that we might live as he did. Satanic possession, divine revelation. Ready? Okay, first, satanic possession, starting with verse 22. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. My first reaction is this is really harsh. Just a minute ago, God told Peter that he was speaking direct words from God the Father himself. Like two sentences ago, two lines ago, look. And then here, just here, Jesus calls the same person, Satan. A little harsh, no? But here's what I think is actually happening here. And I think you'll see this too. That Jesus has great, unwavering clarity about who he is and what he came to do. His identity and mission are so clear. Crystal, crystal. Few good men. Nobody picked up the reference. <laughs> Peter, on the other hand, he's got sort of this general, vague, instinct, feeling, loyalty, animal drive thing going. Like he loves Jesus. He likes kind of what he thinks Jesus stands for. And so he kind of throws his body and his mouth into the mix. And sometimes great things come out of it. And sometimes horrible satanic things come out of it. You know, he's just kind of a mess. Right? And that's what we begin to see in contrast to each other. That Jesus is never confused. He never says the wrong thing. He has a perfect sense of timing. Even when he's getting interrupted all over the uh, gospel stories. It takes him days to get to places because people keep interrupting him. Yet, He knows precisely what he's doing, when, how. Like he's the man. It's all in his head. He just gets it. And Peter's like, ah, I love you, I think. I will die for you. No, I will deny you. No, I will speak Father's words. No, I will speak Satan's words. He's just, he's confused. 
But this moment forces this contrast, and we see the clarity of Jesus in contrast to Peter's confused state. It's almost like Jesus is this higher creature, this evolved person, and Peter just seems just like an animal, a beast, living out of his instincts. So Jesus is clear. Peter is reactive. Jesus is clear. Peter is vague. Jesus is clear. Peter is kind of a nice guy. Jesus is clear. Peter means well. Jesus is clear. Peter is confused. But here, check this out. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, get behind me. Does he? He says, Satan, get behind me. And here's where you have to start now using your brain. Jesus isn't battling Peter. Jesus actually doesn't want to fight Peter, doesn't need to fight Peter. He's fighting Satan. And the implication here is that Peter is almost this neutral battleground that both Jesus and Satan are fighting for. Here's that interesting research that Dan was referring to. Uh, Professor Paul Bloom, uh, not some out there, esoteric, obscure research deal here, but he's a developmental psychology professor and researcher at Yale. And in 2010, he began to reveal uh, through some writings uh, the end result, the findings of this research he's done on babies. And he and his team are asking and trying to answer the question, at what age does badness begin? It's the age-old nature-nurture debate, in a sense. But he takes a different spin on it. And if you read the details of his experiments, it's just brilliant, the way he was able to isolate variables. But that's for another time. But he says things like this, which make his research very compelling, I think. It is no wonder that people are so horrible when they started life as children. Okay, and he finds this. He finds that infants, infants, even newborn infants, up to babies that are months, just months old, show amazing, remarkable capacity for empathy, compassion, and even morality. And you know what morality is? Morality isn't like, why did you do this? Because I wanted to. That's not morality. That's just desire. But morality is, why did you do this? Oh, because it was my turn. Oh, because Sally did the same thing. So you have this higher framework that you're using to think about your actions. And babies that are months old have a capacity to understand justice, right and wrong. Isn't that amazing? But here's also what he finds. That by age two around, give or take, babies are violent. They're racist. They're tribal, they're selfish, they scheme, they lie, and they oppress their fellow two-year-olds. Oh my gosh. And check this out. He says this, as a group of people, as a people group, two-year-olds are the single most violent group in human history. Our only saving grace being that they are small and weak and we can carry them with one arm. 
Fascinating research. But here's the point I want to try to make. That human beings are made in God's image. That we think about who God is. I know you hear this all the time from from preachers. But God is beautiful. He's perfect. He never makes a mistake. He's infinite in his understanding. He is what you imagine to be perfect. Just everything. All good things coming together in one infinite being. And we are made in that image. We, you and I, boring, dull us. We are made in the image of God. The imago Dei. But the scriptures say, though we are made in God's image, we are marred and we're fallen. That that image is broken and it's bent. It's just like a funny mirror in a... um, at a carnival, that there's something that's twisted about us. Not every single thing is wicked and evil, but everything has some touch of wicked and evil in it. It's not like we're pure evil, but we have a bent towards it. And that's what it means, that we take all of this beautiful, perfect, godly image in which we are created, and we channel it towards... And we use our powers in not great ways. And Paul Bloom, researcher at Yale, says that by age two, what becomes obvious, this is the point of his book, Just Babies, he says what's obvious is that the driving instinct in a two-year-old is survival. All they want to do at any expense is to live. That they are using all of their resources, their cuteness, their power, their tantrums. They're not going to bed. They're spilling. Every power that a two-year-old has is channeled towards survival. And the Bible is saying the same thing. Jesus says, if you seek your life, if you seek to find it, to keep it, to have it, you will lose it. That all of us, we are like two-year-olds. That we take all of this divine image, the perfection in which we are created, and we channel it, we use it to try and survive at all costs. And it's often without perspective or wisdom or discipline. We're missing something. There's There's a twistedness in the way that we employ our faculties to survive. We bring ourselves, our reason, our rationale, our experience, our feelings, our intuition, even the help of other wise people to bear on some situation. And we make the very best decision we can. And we're able to look back on that decision and go, oh yeah, that didn't work out so well. It was kind of a surprise. I didn't see that one coming. I didn't know about that. And so our expectations aren't met. And what the scriptures are telling us is this, that we are this almost neutral battleground, made in God's image but fallen. So we're kind of canceling ourselves out in a way. And here is God and Satan vying for our very lives. And this is the hard word. If you're not a Christian in here, this is the part where you get to say Christians are weird. Because you know what it means to be a Christian? We believe in this evil being as a person or as a principle called Satan. 
the accuser, the deceiver. And he is fighting God for us. Now, what we like to believe as good humanists is that we're just free to have our rational thoughts, to be objective, to bring to bear our life experiences and make a decision and love someone and rear children and live life. And the Bible says, no, you're not free. That if you don't have Jesus in you, you will have Satan's influence in your life. This is the weird part about Christians. I, I don't feel comfortable saying this, but if you, if you point a gun to my head, I do believe this. And I've seen it in my life. I look back and I see, oh my gosh, what, what, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I feel that way? Why did the course of events, why did the conversation, how? I'm not just this neutral person. There is a bent in me, and it makes me vulnerable to satanic influence, either as a person or as a principle. Do you believe this? That you actually need Jesus, the strong man, to be in you, to be helping you, to use your faculties, or Satan will? And this is what Jesus is saying. Get behind me, Satan, is a commentary on human fallenness. That it's vulnerable to Satan's domain, his ways, and his agendas. And that we, we are not strong enough or conscious enough to battle Satan by ourselves. That human strength is insufficient. That you and I need God's help. We need help from the outside, not just from the inside. Something has to intervene to break into our self. What we call self. The self is insufficient and we need something else in us to help us battle. And that's part of the problem as Christians frame it. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not here. You look back on yourself and your life. And ask yourself, Lord, look into somebody else's eyes and see if you've ever seen the eyes of Satan or the influence of Satan. You know, uh, psychologists and uh, exorcists, they have this term called primary evil. You know what that is? It's the evil that is first. Because they're secondary evil. What you and I do when we hurt each other and harm each other, that's secondary evil. But what what do you do with evil itself? That's called primary evil. And what I'm telling you today is primary evil is real. Now, second is divine revelation. And that brings us to verse 16 through 17. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Yes, Satan is a thing. It's real. But here's what I think Jesus is also telling us in this passage. That there is such a thing as revelation. 
There is such a thing as God breaking into our life, interrupting us, if you will, to reveal himself to us, to connect himself, to interject himself into our life because the natural course of things isn't going the way it's supposed to. You know, this, this passage here, this is one of a few times in the Bible where we see a but statement between man and God. We don't see this very often. But here we have uh, Jesus saying, You are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. That is, you didn't just come through it using your neurons firing. But, he says, my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Do you believe this, that by our own faculties and assessing our own life experiences, we're not capable of coming to the conclusion that God is good. That God's love is so wide, so high, so deep, and so long that we can't come to the knowledge of his love through learning. It's not some logical deduction, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has to break into our hearts and cause the veil over our, the eyes of our heart to be lifted. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to say, Abba, Father, that means Daddy. That only through the Spirit we come to understand, God is my Father? He loves me? You mean I'm loved? I'm accepted? I don't have to fight this battle. I don't have to do everything in my power to survive like a two-year-old? How come I never saw this? How come, I mean, my parents love me and how come? No, it doesn't add up. It takes revelation. And this is what Jesus is saying. That if you come to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins, who rescues us from the domain of Satan and brings us into his own kingdom, And he becomes the primary influencer of our life, redeeming the image of God in which we were originally created so that we're not channeling all of that perfection to survive at all costs, but to serve, which is what we were made for. For us to be able to do that, it requires a miracle. You are not a Christian if you are today because you're smart. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you're the scum of the earth. Not my words. That you are the lowliest of the lowliest. And preachers, Paul says, are just peddlers. Trying to sell something that the world despises. That God's wisdom is foolishness to us. Because it doesn't make sense. Because it's through revelation. And it's revelation such that even angels have longed to look. In fact, all of creation has been groaning for the revelation of the children of God. This whole salvation thing, this whole thing where we're not just quoting Satan, but able to speak God's words, that's a miracle. We can't come to it on our own. And what do we learn about this revelation? What's the revelation? What's the theme? And this is the part where if we are able to see this, we won't be surprised anymore. Our expectations will not 
be unmet. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then verse 24, then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know what we learn? That God is not in survival mode like some two-year-old. God's not trying to survive like Peter, who threw Jesus under the bus whenever it was convenient. Whenever Peter's own life was on the line, what Jesus? I don't know him. Bye. God's not in survival mode. He came not to survive, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. None of the experts in the law could predict what the Messiah was to do because they didn't understand this concept of death and then life. And this is the secret of life I'm sharing with you today. If you don't already know this, that whatever endeavor you take on in a new profession, in a new relationship, in a new church, it's never going to go just up. Nothing is ever just up and to the right. I guess for you it would be this. That's some professional speaker stuff right there. See, rookies just, they do this all day. But there is this thing called death. You die to your expectations, to your greed, to your plans. And then God raises you up from the dead. In church planting, we have a phrase that we teach over and over again at the training centers. We say, you will be broken. And there's other variations of this phrase. People use words like rock bottom. That you must die. That Jesus, the Son of God, must be killed. He had to suffer. And if you are going to be his follower, you also will take up your cross. And you will die. As a parent, you will die. As a lover, you will die. As a friend, you will die. As an employee, you will die. As a citizen, you will die. As a Christian, you will die. Again and again and again, so that God can raise you up from the dead, not in your power, but in the power of his Holy Spirit. Because you, by yourselves, the part that had to die is vulnerable to Satan. But the part of you that God raises up from the dead, according to Scripture, is untouchable. Invincible. Eternal. I don't know about Apple products anymore. I am in Microsoft land, this Apple TV business. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. As we end the sermon here, I want to give you, share with you, something kind of vulnerable for me. Uh, This is my personal, Peter's worldview. This is not God's. You know, when I preach about grace versus works, the works part is a little vague to me. What do you mean I try to work for my salvation? What does that mean? And 
That's confusing as a principle, but when I take it to the personal level, it makes a lot of sense. This is the pattern of Peter's son. This is my modus operandi for surviving in life. This is me at my two-year-old best. Okay, so, and, and uh, I feel a little bit vulnerable, so if you don't quote this back to me, I will be okay with that. And uh, usually, you know, I like to put Susie up in this spot and tell a Susie story, but she said it's my turn today. Okay, so when I'm in a tough situation, this, my first mode is frantic. Okay? And then I get into fight mode. I kind of focus a little bit. I understand the game. I got my combo punches going. And then I get really tired. That's my fatigue. And then I take flight. And if I see my life, I see this pattern over and over and over again. And I see this pattern in Peter the Apostle's life too. What did he do after he got into fight mode? He first chopped a year off, fight mode. And then he was tired, so he's warming himself by the fire and threw Jesus under the bus three times. And then he went back to fishing. He ran away. This is what works for me. This is survival for me. And I have to invite Jesus and the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead into my life to help me break the power of this pattern. And Satan is working this pattern all the time. And each phase, I'm convinced I'm not at that point. But then looking back, I see that I was. What about you? What patterns are in your life? See, when Satan is in your life, he's not just some impractical you know, idea or concept, but he's very practically integrated himself into your flesh, into how you work. And he's working you by working you. He knows the machinery of who you are. So I'd like us to close with a prayer And we don't do this often, but I'm going to ask you to pray with me and I'm going to guide you through the prayers. And uh, even if you're not a Christian here today, I invite you to do that because I think you're going to find there's a lot of truths here that you might be able to say amen to. Amen just means I agree with it or so be it. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Bow your heads. Unless you're writing, I want to ask you to fold your hands together. And pray this with me as I pray, as it applies to you. God, I confess today that my life has not been what I expected. I confess that there have been a few surprises, that I have not been smart enough and competent enough to predict my life. God, I confess also that there are ways that I am, patterns in my life that are self-serving, that I am in survival mode. And if you are able to think of some ways, confess those specifically. 
God, I also see that your ways are different than my ways, that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I see that your way involves death, but not just death, but life through death, through the power of the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus, who is the Christ. I invite you, Jesus, to be in my life through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, get thee behind me, Satan. In Jesus' name, I belong not to myself, not to Satan, but to God. In Jesus' name, amen.